All right, and welcome to episode six of Navigating the Intentional Life. I am Justin Copeland, founder and creator of the same blog and the podcast. And I have to tell you guys, I'm excited because as you've seen, if you've listened to the podcast prior, what our mission here is to bring you individuals and their stories that at each turn of their life were able to make choices that put them in the position that they're in now and what that mindset is, what the passions were behind that, what the failures were behind that, the struggles along with the successes. And it is my honor today to have a young man on that, uh, I got to see this process kind of unfold throughout the course of the last, oh Lord, we're getting old, 24 years. Um, he is somebody that is younger than me, but I look up to. And when he said that he would sit down for this podcast, I was extremely excited because it's a story that I feel one, 100% fits the idea of navigating the intentional life but also one that is just something that people need to hear because from the outside looking in, yeah, man, this guy has done a little bit of everything and nothing's gone wrong. It just looks perfect. So this, uh, this guest of mine, I I'm lucky enough to call a dear friend. He is a father. He is a husband. He is a musician. He is a brewer of wart yeast whisperer and a barrel herder. At St. Arnold Brewing. This is Aaron Incrot. Aaron, my man, what's up? Not too much. How are you, man? <laughs> I am fantastic. I hope that uh, I know you don't like a lot of ado, if you will, but uh, I could not was, help myself with that. It was. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it, man. It is. Uh, it is like I said. It really is great to be able to sit down and do this with you. I mean, we, we've talked so much over the years and obviously we know each other's story. I know yours and I am very excited to, to do this. So without me just obliterating kind of who you are and where you are now, why don't you kind of just give us a quick um, little insight to what you're doing currently and and where you're at and then we can start talking about um you know how you ended up there okay um my role at st arnold is uh, by title is the brewing innovation manager and essentially what that is is i manage all research and development in regards to not only new recipes but raw material research um, basically trying to see if how could we be more efficient in a recipe if we use a you know a different raw material um, but also I am kind of a ambassador for the brewery where I participate in you know tastings beer dinners outings and I do several interviews for the brewery whether for like publications podcasts and whatnot um, uh, pre-covid I was traveling but now that's, things are starting to return to some semblance of what things used to be. That's starting to pick back up again, which is exciting. Um, yeah. Yeah, I definitely get to follow along with that and, and see uh, the kind of 
blossoming of this career that you've had um, go from, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you started as, <clears throat> you know, not, you weren't just immediately a master brewer at, no, at San no. Arnold's, correct, right? Yeah, I was, so I've been here, it'll be 10 years in August. Um, and I started out as, and before those 10 years, I was working just as a bartender and tour guide for about a year and a half, two years, just trying to get my foot in the door of, of any brewery for that matter. Um, and shift brewer, which basically means I rotate on 24 hour shifts or not 20, excuse me, that on a 24 hour schedule, but we would rotate on, you know, eight, nine hour shifts in that regard. And, um, working overnight for a long time and then working early mornings. And it's, I mean, brewing itself is a very manual labor, uh, job. Um, and, but also requires a fair amount of mental capacity too, because there's a fair amount of calculations that need to take. It's also very critical. Um, but it was a very, I mean, it's a very rewarding job because at the very end of the day, you can, you have a consumable product that you can enjoy and feel good about. Um, and after shift brewing for a few years, moved into a we call it a lead shift brewer. Um, after that, took over barrel room management. So, meaning I managed all of our beer aging and wood barrels, whether they're bourbon, tequila, gin, mezcal. I mean, it, it's, there's dozens of different types of barrels we've used in the past. Uh, then took on a head brewer role. Did that for about two years. Um, head, bro- head Brewer kind of oversees all production and working with packaging to kind of, you know, just ensure that the efficiency of brew to packaging is, is working, you know, as efficiently as possible. And then during that role, there was a brewer who was, I, I think that's important going through, we will probably talk about this a little bit, but uh, there was an individual that I could clearly see was, would be much better in that role than myself. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of trying to, as a manager, develop him to uh, realize that and kind of help others that I work with realize that he would be talented in the role and, but also try to do for myself. Um, so we never really had someone truly dedicated to R and D and at our brewery size that we, we needed that. So I proposed that we create R and D management and have this other guy take the head brewer role. And that's, that's what we've did. And we've been kind of going down that path for, um, almost two years. So, yeah. Yeah, so this, I mean, I love the fact that you called it a consumable product. It is definitely a consumable product. Um, I'm a big fan of what you guys you guys do out there. And it kind of made me laugh when you started talking about the, uh, the barrel, you know, produced beer. The first time I ever had that, when, uh, when I realized, when we realized that we were not far from each other, um, man, that stuff was, was extremely good. So if you all out there listening... Uh, you can get with Aaron. You can find him on social media and ask him which which uh, flavor to go with on that. But you know, this was not where you started. It's not like twenty years ago. You know, you came to me and said, "Justin, you know what I really want to do? I want to brew beer." Yeah, 
I mean, 20 years ago, you know, we were all probably going, yeah, I like some beer, but it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't this passion that it's created now. So we, you know, obviously getting, you know, the, the, at the end of the story, we're very much in the present of your story, but this is not how you saw your life even 12 years ago. Absolutely shaping not. Out. No. And, and so what's interesting to me, and I can, I'll, I'll set the picture a little bit, but when I met Aaron, we were still in high school and he had a, one of those butt crack part haircuts, blonde headed kid, uh, toe head, if you will. And it, look, I can make fun of that all I want. The girls loved it. Um, I hated him for it, but he was very much, and it still is a lover of music. I, I kind of shortly glossed over that um, whenever we started this intro and met him through, through, a uh, love of wanting to make and create and share music. Uh, we did get into a band at one point and I was terrible, but, but Aaron has always been extremely talented. And he was also a swimmer. <laughs> now I, I didn't have Aaron. I didn't have a single friend that was actually a swimmer. And, and like you, uh, when we started talking about this, we were very similar in the sense that we had not just one circle, we had several circles of friends. We were those social butterflies, if you will. And I think that was because of an interest to have diversity in our lives, to get a feel and a flavor for everybody, to learn from, to grow from. And, and that was something that you, you very much were because, um, again, I saw a lot of myself in you and I think vice versa. And so we, we built this relationship through writing music. And when I say writing, Aaron did all the writing. That's not music. true. Well, with the music, <laughs> I had these thoughts in my head and, and we would sit for hours on end creating. And I know back then and even, even now, it's, it's one of those oddly beautiful intimate relationships that you piece together only when you're doing something of that nature uh, because you're putting yourself out there raw. But that was how I got to know Aaron over 20 years ago now. And that was your passion. The moment I met you, Yellow Ledbetter, that was the big moment mm, for you. Yeah, indeed. I mean, shit, why not? You know what I mean? Yeah. And you were the first person that I met that just said, you know what? I have a plan and I'm on it. And that plan really started to get a foundation because of your swimming. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so I, I mean, I was a talented enough to get a scholarship to go, to go to uh, college on. And I think the, I mean, I, I was always big into music. I started playing music at a pretty young age, learning piano at five or six years old. Um, and I did that for all the, I mean, still play. At fifth grade, because the orchestra teacher came into our orchestra, come, come to the cafeteria. So I did. And I surprised my parents and said, hey, we need to buy a violin because I just joined orchestra. And then, and then a few years later, when I'm 11 or 12, um, wait, that's like, that is fifth grade, I guess. Um, yeah, but 
um, I want I tell them that I want to learn guitar and I'll teach myself guitar because I was taking private lessons on piano and violin, but I, I knew enough to they're similar enough to guitar that I could teach myself. So that's what I did. And all this while I'm, I'm swimming and I'm talented enough at it. And hindsight, we can get in this later about, you know, putting the right amount of effort and into your activities that you're involved in. But <clears throat> I was talented enough in swimming with, without ever really putting myself there mentally a hundred percent. Um, and I say that because I, my whole goal was always to, I need to find a way to New York City. That was always my big thing. New York when I was a sophomore uh, on an orchestra trip. And after seeing that place, I was just, because, I mean, I don't know, how, I don't think you've spoken much about Bartlesville, but the last thing I remember you mentioned about Bartlesville in one of your podcasts was that it is a great place to raise a family. It probably yeah. sucks. It sucks for, you know, mid twenties. And, but if you have a family, it's a great place to raise a family. Oh yeah. And, but for me as a, as a young kid, it was like, I needed to get out of there. It, it, it was, it wasn't big enough. And, and I had, I had, my goals were, were too large that Barsville couldn't fulfill. And yep. so that one visit to New York, kind of molded me in a way that decided that I need to be here. So I trained to be able to, but I had this goal that, you know, swimming's not going to, it can only get me so far. It's not like a sport like basketball or baseball or football where there's a, you know, there's a monetary um, like position that, cause that's only reserved for like the top zero zero point one percent of swimmers. It's such an individual sport that if many swimmers, in my opinion, have delusions of grandeur that they're going to make the Olympic team and then become, uh, you know, wealthy, which is only true for a very small percentage. Right. Yeah. Them. So I always kind of knew that swimming will be a, a platform for me to jump off to get somewhere else. That's all it is. And that was to get to New York, work in the music industry. And at, at a time, I thought I was going to be. A, I mean, that's, that's what we were doing when we were in high school. Yep. Um, found a band, and after that, was joined a, a band when I was in college, and we did pretty well. We tra uh, we toured, and, um, like small tours in our in our cars and whatnot. But right. um, it was a lot of working. I eventually got a record label gig uh, as an intern. Um, worked in the A&R department. Um, and eventually I kind of realized that, Oh my God, these people are really talented. Like all these musicians. And mm -hmm. I, I mean, I could potentially get to that point, but there was the time that it would take to get there. I mean, I was swimming, I was a student athlete, I was a student, um, and doing this a this A&R internship that eventually became a job. Um, that the time available to kind of get to that point, I was like, huh, this, how can, this might not work out as a musician. And then I, the longer I was at the record label, I realized like, oh man, this, this whole producing and engineering, like behind the glass. And it really, 
I really because the the joy of being a producer is that you're you're trying to find the best performance in that moment with the artist that you're working with and you're and at many times you're working with a very fragile state and mm. and w within that fragile state you can you can typically get the rawest emotion um which is some of the best recordings is, I mean. yeah and i want to <clears throat> i want to back you up because there's some things here that you've said that i want to make sure anyone that's listening grabs onto so first off they're going no justin wade like i want to hear more about this music producing because hell everyone loves music right of some kind yeah. and i think everybody at some point you say they were passionate about you know maybe maybe not everyone but there's there's you can't not romanticize being a musician being a rock star, being, you know, someone that gets paid to entertain in that capacity. Mm -hmm. But that's, that's fast forwarding through a lot of other decisions yeah. that were made that got you to that point. And that sound, it's sound, the way you tell the story and I know the story. <laughs> and, and so I know it's not easy, right? I know it didn't just fall into your lap. It didn't just work that way. So to go back to the swimming, the point is this, I know that you, you, you dare I say you love swimming. Yeah, I think, I mean, hindsight, yes. I might have been a, a bit more callous towards it, but yeah. And I, I think that's so. a great way to put it. I will say that that is a fantastic way to describe how you felt about swimming because by the time I got to New Jersey, because that's the other thing we're going to back up to, mm -hmm. um, that was definitely your mindset. Now, the point I want to make is this, is that you were good enough to – be a competitive swimmer you were good enough that not only did you just get a scholarship man like you got a scholarship to a d1 university yeah that is a well well known i believe it's a tier one university so you know you didn't just get any scholarship you got one that i'm sure tons and tons and tons of kids out there would have killed for and really doing it at 75 80 percent capacity the point is, is that you knew, you knew that step, the swimming, that mm -hmm. was your springboard to this ultimate picture that you had, but you could not get there without the other. Correct. Yeah. And so that's a conscious decision you made. It was part of the plan. It was part of the story and you didn't have it all figured out. I mean, yes, you knew you wanted to go to New York. I think we all get these these ideas and these wants. And I think we all have our, our locations, but you picked one cause I could easily go, well, why not California? You know, what, what was it about New York that, you know, the vibe of it, the, the opportunity in it. Um, there were a lot of decisions that I'm sure were rolling around in your mind prior to, but the biggest thing is that first portion of your story came with utilizing one thing that being swimming to ultimately reach the place that you really wanted to be, but still having to do the swimming part. And I can tell you guys right now, I think we went up to that pool one time uh -huh. and it's no joke. And I played soccer, but the amount of endurance and stamina and overall body strength that it takes to just swim that one lap, just down and, and not even back is tremendous 
So this is not like, oh, let's go splash around a little bit. Uh, I mean, we, we had Olympic-level swimmers that were qualified for the Olympics. They didn't necessarily make the team. But it's – I mean, we're talking about I – mean, to get a scholarship to a D1 school is incredibly difficult. Right. And it doesn't happen very often. And right. <clears throat> I think now that I have kids and I think of, you know, telling this story of, you know, I didn't have – it's, it sounds like a really negative thing to say that I didn't put my all in it. And, you know, honestly, um, maybe at certain times when I'm certain, like, you know, in a race, absolutely I'm putting my all in it. But putting 100% into something basically means that I see it as you, you live and breathe it. Yep. Um, and being a student athlete, that's very difficult to do. Um, and then when you have these other passions, like I did with music, it, it was, I remember having these conversations with, with my old teammates that I would ask them, like, what do you like to do outside of swimming? What do you want to do after swimming? And they would, you know, typically comment. It was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going for the Olympics. Olympics. And I'm like, it's such an individual sport and you can see your, your times. You, I'm thinking to, like, you have to drop a bunch of seconds in a 100 100- that's nearly impossible and like when i say delusions of grandeur like i really felt that a lot of my teammates had that that they're not here preparing themselves for the next step they're only here for this dream of being an olympian which is a great dream but i also feel that you need to be you need you need to be realistic like it's better to live in a harsh reality you know it's that's just kind of my perspective Um, yeah and i'll always say i think sport is one of the greatest thing if not the greatest thing that that man has ever created for what it can bring to society what it you know as cliche as it sounds, what it brings to the world and how it can unify and of course when i say that i think i think olympics i think but i you know you know me i'm obviously thinking soccer Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and rugby to that extent, you know, we're, we're kind of in this weird blinders type glass bubble here in America, where we think that baseball and football and basketball are the biggest sports in the world. And they are absolutely wrong. (laughs) You know, like nobody cares in England who the Super Bowl champions are in the United States. No, but, but that said, conversely, like, you know, this, this, this idea that I'm going to be an Olympic swimmer, I'm going to make the Olympic team, any kid that gets into sport and they start doing it competitively. My son is the same. He wants to be a professional soccer player. It's like, I love that drive. I love that dream. Cause if you're going to dream, right? Like, why not dream? Like, why not dream, dream the big? biggest? Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I'm not going to say shoot for mediocrity, son, but, <laughs> yes. but also, and this is a this is a point that we'll get into because you said it to me the other day on the phone, but things change. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a great that's kind of a a great intertwining theme in your story that we can get into. But I don't want to pass up this this important piece, I think, to the development that I saw in you from the time that we left high school and I went my way to the point where we linked up and I, I did move out to New Jersey and Aaron offered me a, a spot in his living room floor. Um, 
you know, to stay and, and got my, you know, got me out of a place where we were very similar in that, that ideology of this place isn't big enough. Mm -hmm. I need something more. You just had a much more defined path. You knew what you were there for. And with that, you know, the swimming, I've always respected that. I don't know that I've ever said that to you ever, that you would actually put your body through all of that, your mind, the time, the hours. I mean, it just, it's grueling. It's grueling. But it was all for a purpose. So, you know, I, I think any story from you leaving Bartlesville to going to Rutgers, there's people, right, that are influential mm -hmm. in that process. So, because I'm not going to sit here and pretend, and I'm, I know that you're not going to either, that you just were like, yep, Aaron, I got it figured out. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> right? You had to have that somebody. Now, I know you're very close to your dad. Yeah. And, and I think you have a great relationship with both of your parents and, and, and they're, they're wonderful people. Um, but what was it for you or who was it for you that really helped kind of define this stalwart stoic, um, mentality that you seem to have at times? Absolutely. It comes from my father. Um, <clears throat> he, he always has a very good tactful approach to calm in pretty much most situations that I, that I remember him encountering. Um, my mom, I definitely get my creative, emotional music side from her. She is, she is an artist, but she's also, but she's also an engineer. She's, she was a uh, chemical engineer when she was in school. Um, and they, they're, I was, I'm, I'm very blessed to have the parents that I do. Um, I would definitely not be where I'm at without their, without, without their help. Um, and I, I mean, so I live in Houston now and uh, later, but when I made a transition from music to, to brewing, the only way I could do that was with the help of family. So, and they were the big, they were the big one associated with that. Right. Um, hard work was definitely ingrained in my father and mom. Um, the, I, I th baby boomers are, and, uh, are, are known for their hard work. Um, and my father came from a farm family of nine kids and, he was he was one of the middle ones and he he realized school could excel him and take him to to other places so he studied hard he got a phd in chemistry and um he traveled the world loving his job and he about five years ago and you know i think of I mean, that generation is probably one of the last, it's likely the last generation that will hold the same job for more than 20, 30 years. Right now, everybody kind of pops around. Um, my mother, she, you know, my dad traveled a lot. So she helped, she raised, you know, a really great family of three kids. And, um, 
Yeah. I mean, they, I had every, I, I had all the opportunities available to me if I wanted it. And I, I definitely, I definitely know that. And it's something that after realizing it is hell, I want to be able to try to do this for my own kids and try to give them the best opportunity to try and do everything that they can do that, that what their passions have. Right. And that's, that's something that's so, it's so singular though, because you said, you know, I had, I had all the opportunity, you know, at my, at my fingertips, I had the support I had, you know, whatever the, that's however you want to look at the word support. It may have been full fold, but I think that's where you see these people nowadays with kind of this bullshit mentality of, well, it's easier for you. Maybe because you come from a family that has more money or a, a, a status that makes it seem on the surface that you, you have a, a head up, you know, you're a leg up from the rest. That might be true. Mm-hmm. And it probably is in some ways. I mean, there's, but, there, but, Go ahead. yeah, but, the responsibility still falls on that person to take advantage of said opportunity. Yeah. Opportunities. You could have been a real jackass with great parents that did everything they could to give you the world. And you could have chose otherwise. You could have gone out to New York and, and, and by God with what you were doing and where you were working, (laughs) you could have easily gone off the rail. Mm-hmm. Right, because again, you're still human. Mm-hmm. Nobody's Temptation. special that get the, gets themselves in in these different positions, regardless of what it is, what whatever the title is. They're human. They start somewhere. It's almost like we look at people and and you know you see the guy that's you know jacked out and ripped up and he's just you know in all this shape and you go, man, he must have just always been that way. It's like no, no, he started somewhere, but. Your time in New York was something that I think was uh, very, I noticed the changes. I noticed the growth because you did have a mentor out in New York as well. Yeah. That helped kind of guide you because this wasn't easy. I mean, you mentioned, you've mentioned it several times now, student athlete, student working, you know, I think it, you know, to an extent you say part time, but Mm -hmm. I know for a fact there were a lot, a lot of hours that you put into that job. And on the human side of it, you're a dude. You like females. <laughs> yes. You want to date. You don't want to be alone. Yeah. Um, so you're also trying to balance all this and potentially have, you know, a, a romantic, uh, the romantic side of your life as well. And so you stayed out, you finished out at Rutgers but in that time frame, you know, I want to know a little bit more about this mentor and how that helped kind of get you through. And then we can start talking about what everybody loves is that uh, you also had, you know, some, some, some romance in your life as well. Of course. <clears throat> I think what, what I can't think of my college career without actually thinking of 9-11. Mm-hmm. This, is a very, this might seem like a, a, a very sharp right turn, but. I, my freshman year, two weeks into being at Rutgers, 9-11 happened. And 
Uh, Rutgers is in New Brunswick, New Jersey. It's less than a 30-minute train ride from um, from Penn Station, which is at 34th and 7th Avenue. Um, Penn Station is where Madison Square Garden is at. Um, right. So in 9-11, like on September 11th, it was there was a cloud in the sky, and if anybody's familiar with New York uh, area, it's mo- mostly overcast. Um, here I am, an Oklahoma boy. My two roommates, one's from one is from L.A., the other is from Queens, and he is a uh, so he's he, like I the first time I ever watched Godfather was with him. So there, say he's Sicilian, is that what you yes, said? Yes. Okay. Sicilian. Yeah, we got we had a little interrupt there. So <clears throat> yeah, so he's he's from Queens, and he's a Sicilian boy, and. So first time I ever watched Godfathers with him. Um, but 9-11 happened. And I remember being in, in my dorm room, or not my dorm, uh, I was in one of my communication classes. And it was a lecture hall, so there's a bunch of people in it. And it's in the morning, so, and everybody's kind of, the class is starting. Somebody, like, as people are coming in, they're like, someone hit, a plane hit the Trade Center. And this, we don't have smartphones. We, we can't, we have no idea, we can't, we're not connected as we are now. Right. Um, and the teacher, uh, the professor is like, well, uh, a plane hit the Empire State Building back in the, you know, 50s or 60s. I idea what the size of the plane was. The plane that hit the Empire State, State Building was a tiny little Cessna. Right. Um, but, and then we start class. I don't know how much longer it goes by, 20 or 30 minutes or something. There's classes just listening to the professor give the lecture and then someone in the back auditorium slams open the doors running down and this large man huge muscles not fat like huge man in tears can't catch his breath and the professor's like what is wrong and he just says the towers are gone that's all he says and the air in that room was vacuumed out and here i am i have i'm from oklahoma small town i am an alien observing this 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 experience and you can just I, you can hear the concern and panic in the room and the professor just slams his fist on the table and says raise your hand if you have family in the financial district and more than half the crowd raises their hands mm. and he says file out single file out of the auditorium and he says everybody else sit down so everybody sits down everybody else sits down and then finally we're able to leave justin i don't know if you and i have ever actually talked about we probably talked about this but um but you could see from records that's how, how bad it was yeah and and then for like the next well even throughout that entire year that school year just my my roommate joe uh joe who was from queens he knew several people that died and he like seeing seeing uh, living with him and everyone else on that floor just being impacted by it and here i'm like i'm not impacted i'm only kind of vicariously impacted by it by watching it on a tv screen or watching people so I think that kind of built me towards that singular, that one of that big moment when I'm at such an impress, impressionable age, you no. know, 
there's no reason for me to be upset other than being an American, but I'm not affected by it. I'm not, I don't have any family or friends or anything like that affected by it. I'm just observing all this. And I think that was a big lesson for me realizing that it's having a, an objective view on ca- on such catastrophic and events like that is a very valuable perspective in life. Yep. And so, and I think we talked about my father and mother, and I think that's kind of where my father comes into play is he's a very objective man. Remove himself emotionally and to really understand what is what's the actual objective truth. Not what's, what is not being diluted or, you know, putting your own opinion on it. Truth, not being subjective. So that was such an integral experience. Um, and then, so having that kind of mindset of being objective and kind of learning that, because when you're, when you're a teenager going into college, not be me, 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 you know, yeah. And, um, I, that was big. So, and then kind of like, how's that fast forwards to and what she taught me. So I got the, uh, music internship or record label internship, my sophomore year, the, the summer after my sophomore year. And, um, Cause that was always my, like, like we talked about, it was always my goal to get into New York and work in the, work in the music industry. So that was always my focus. And I, f- the amount of cold calls I made and emails I made, and eventually, you know, I would get us, I would get some bites. And finally this, it was between, I interviewed, the final thing was I interviewed at two different places. Um, Sony BMG, which are obviously one of the largest record labels in the world. Right. Um, and then this small independent label, uh, wind up records, but they still had, you know, they were making a name for themselves. They had, they had discovered uh, Evanescence right at the time. Evanescence was blowing up. Um, yep. and they had a bunch of other, you know, smaller acts that they were trying to build. And, I remember the wind-up experience. The, the benefit of the wind-up experience was that they were actually going to pay. So what was crazy to think about, Sony BMG was not going to pay. They just said, experience that you get. That's, that's what we're paying you for. But wind-up, who's the smaller company, who arguably has much less money, right. what was going to pay. And I was like, well, okay, there's that. Sony BMG has, you know, some of my favorite artists of all time and going to wind up. I was like, well, Creed's there. They're, they're Creed. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, and, but we'll, we the can original talk Nickelback. But I eventually got to know the guitarist, Mark Tremonti. And that's, he definitely changed my life and, and for, for the best. And, uh, right. um, but that's another story. And, uh, but I went with Windup because I was actually going to be involved with the artists and I was going to be, you know, only two degrees from them. Whereas Sony BMG, it was going to be, uh, my impact there was going to be nothing. Right. So, um, 
I went with windup and I worked, so worked full time during the summer. And then after that summer, um, they offered me a, they offered me to quit my, to quit school and come work full time. That was a really, I'm sure that was tough. Oh man. I was all about it. I was like, I made it. Everything I've set up for my, my life is like, it's finally here. And then I remember having, yeah, it's happening. And I was like, I remember having the conversation with my parents who were like, absolutely not. And I was like, well, and then I'm technically an adult. I could do this, but at that's, it's like, I could have done that, but it wouldn't, like hindsight, obviously things are working out great for me. And so it was, and talk about delusions of grandeur. There's my own experience of it. So. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, I think, I think it's gotta be, you know, one, you're in this fascinating place. You know, for anybody listening that hasn't made their way out to the East coast, specifically, you know, New York and um, just that part of the country, I, I would highly recommend that you do. But the experience with nine 11 and being there firsthand life has a funny way of, as we start to get a bit older, opening ourselves, opening us up a bit more to the fragility of it. Mm -hmm. And as a young man, like you said, I mean, where we came from, it is very sheltered. Yeah. Very sheltered in comparison to what these, these kids in, in certain parts of our country and, are growing up with and around. And obviously this event that we're talking about is one that will be talked about forever. Yeah. <clears throat> but to experience that firsthand, to see it in the manner that you did, I would have to imagine that that definitely somewhere within your psyche made you realize this could all be gone. Oh yeah. Tomorrow. Today. Right. And I think that's such a valuable lesson for a lot of us. And we don't necessarily get that experience. Uh, I'm not saying that I want people to go out and get some near-death experience or <laughs> no, no. you know, throw themselves out <laughs> to the wolves. That's not what I'm saying by any stretch of the imagination. But to be able to grab on and say, look, I'm not guaranteed. And it is, it is cliche, but it is true. You're not when, guaranteed. When you see it, when you... Uh, when you see that face to face, it's a, uh, I can't, I can't explain it. Um, but yeah, I'm at a yeah. loss for words. <laughs> well, and I know we, we had, when I was there, we had conversations about that specifically. Yeah. Some of those conversations were heightened by other things, but, sure. um, you know, we were we were doing the damn thing and I could easily see how it would be so easy for someone to get swept up by, like you were saying, this opportunity with the record label. But there is something about New York that it just it changes you in a way, just oh, the yeah. environment. You know, I'll never forget walking walking up through Penn Station that very first time we went into the city. And as you're walking up those steps to get out into the city, the noise, the light, it all starts to become louder and it's growing. And it's kind of crescendoing to this. You step out and it's like, bam, here is this massive friggin' place. And I'll never forget this ever. I tell this story all the time. 
we were going, I don't know where the hell we were going, but we were about to cross the crosswalk. And the most dangerous thing in New York is not the crime. It is not crossing the street. (laughs) It's crossing the effing streets because the cab drivers are maniacs. Yeah. Like, I would love to see, I'm not going to say that, but anyway, so the cab driver's crazy. We're standing there and there's this tall, and in my, my memory, it was a tall, I'm going to say Sicilian, Italian looking gentleman in a very nice suit. He was pretty thick. He had his hair slicked back. He was on a flip phone. And next to him was a four foot three Asian lady with the whole tourist garb on. I love NY shirt. I think she, again, in my mind's eye, she had a foam finger um, <laughs> and her map. Cause this is back when kids, they used to print maps Yes, that you had One to like phone. the hardest, the hardest part about those maps where you had to figure out how to fold them back closed, but she's got the map. Well, the life for us to cross turns. She starts to step out. So does this large Italian American. And then of course, here comes wow, this freaking cab driver. <laughs> and so they stop with the little Asian girl, bless her heart. She runs into the back of this Italian guy. And I'm thinking, Oh, here's a moment where, you know, I'm just like taking this little interaction in. and Aaron, I, I don't know if you remember this, but I was very enthralled by this interaction because he looks down at her from his phone and without missing a beat, he says, watch where the fuck you going, doll. <laughs> and crosses the street. And I was like, what? What is happening? Like, where we're from, if you run into someone or someone runs into you, you almost apologize. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you just, there's that courtesy. They're like, oh, my, my, my fault. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. There's some <laughs> hospitality there. Not this guy. No. No. He's like, pull your head out of your ass you know like what is happening and that's i don't know but for me when i think about new york that first day that first experience in that whole other world with inside of our country it it was mind it blowing it opened me up to go there is a whole other way to live life uh, and you get caught up in it oh yeah and i think it's I mean, coming from where we come from, Bartlesville, we, and you and I could, I mean, we weren't the small fish. We were, you know. Yeah. But as soon as you get to New York, you realize how small you are. And I always kind of think of that, that quote from, I don't remember which astronaut said it, but it's, um, I mean, you could, when they first saw the, the earth as a globe, um, in outer space, he said he could put his thumb over the earth out of the window when they were flying to the moon. And I just think that, wow, you can just cover everybody up with your thumb. And yep. I mean, obviously, New York is, I mean, it's, it's a huge place. And that was Jim Lovell. Ah, great. So Jim it, Lovell. Thanks to my production team for that. <laughs> um, but I, I just think of th- that experience in New York and realizing how small you are is, is uh, and I think that kind of comes back with, 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 what your, with what your podcast is about is, I mean, it, can, it is a humbling experience for, on your first visit to New York, but can you take that humbling experience and find purpose and, uh, and find where you can help you know, not just yourself succeed, but 
help those around you and specifically help your community. And I mean, that, that's kind of where it's all at. Yeah. And that's something that you've always had innately in you from the moment that I met you. And so to take all of that, that we just threw out there back to the point where you are literally looking at your dream being a reality coming to fruition, all these years of the speedos and the rubber Mm -hmm. caps and killing your body to become a D one level and almost uh, Olympic qualifying um, swimmer. I think you, yeah, we, qualify. I was, yeah, I did, but yeah, sorry to take that away from you, but I couldn't remember. Well, it's, no, it's, it's, I was swimming in the era of Michael Phelps. So it's kind of, it's, um, I've heard of that guy. He was winning everything. So, yeah. So you, you, <laughs> you've got all this right there and you sitting there going, yeah, but I still have school to finish. Yeah. Yeah. This is me making my mark and who knows, maybe this opportunity never comes again. Right. If I don't mm-hmm. take it right now, like they want it, are they going to pass me by for the guy that will? Mm-hmm. And so that has to be really hard to almost an unsurmountable thought as a young man in this crazy upside down place to, to say, no, you know what? I got to finish school. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of that was geared from my parents. And I remember talking to, you know, my friends, up there about it and it was just too young to make that decision i wasn't even 21 yet right and um thankfully i didn't and uh i'd be on a different path obviously if i did but um, right and that that decision i think you know i again knowing you well enough but for point of people that don't and look at these decisions if they're you know they're they're in a moment where they're themselves having to make some kind of big choice, potentially. It's that thing that I always talk about. It's like that phrase of listening to your gut, I think is so underutilized because again, that, that phrase comes from a medical term, right? It's Mm -hmm. a, it is a medical phrase, but it is so big in the, the overall part of life. Uh, you, you kind of know the, the answer to a choice, to a, to a question in your life almost instantly. Mm-hmm. Right. There's always that little part of you that's kind of like, this is the answer. It's just whether or not you listen to that. Right. And I would imagine that with you, that that choice to take on working full time at the label or staying in school and finishing, you probably immediately had that gut instinct and go, no, I need to finish. Yeah. Oh, I can't, sure. I can't walk away. I can't quit. I'm not made that way. So I've got to finish this, but it worked out. Right. I mean, you, you finished school and yeah. You ended up, after you graduated, doing what? So, playing in my band at the time, um, playing with my buddy, and if I had taken that job, I would not have ended up, you know, starting that band. And we played a lot of great music. We got to play a lot in front of a lot of people. Um, I was a bartender at the time, too, after I graduated, which was... I think everybody should be in the service industry. Yep. Um, you realize how to actually treat people. You realize how shitty people also are um, yep. who have horrible patience for it's like, what's that line in waiting? Like never screw with somebody who makes your food. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's, that should be in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it, 
so that's what I was kind of doing afterwards. And I was, I had, I got let go from the label beginning of my senior year because they were kind of changing things. And, but that was fine. I was getting, they were going, I remember being in a meeting that they had said, we want, we want to find a Britney Spears. And that's not why I got into music. <laughs> so oh, I realized no. it was, it was the clear. I mean, I always kind of knew that music, the music industry was developing products and not more or less creating great music. Obviously in some degrees, those great products can develop some great music, but I with where was I wanted it to be authentic. Right. And I kind of realized that if I were, I couldn't work at a record label if I wanted that. Um, and I learned that from my mentor, Chipper. She was the one who worked at Wind Up and she ended up leaving too because the industry. Um, but she had, she had always a big focus on be sure to remain authentic. Yeah. Um, and she was a badass chick. Oh my God. Tiny like little blonde was, woman. Yeah. She was <laughs> real deal legit. And I was only around her a few times. Yeah. Um, so yes, it's a good shout out to Chipper. But I was hoping we get to that because I know that she was very influential, <clears throat> in, very much, and so. kind of understanding the industry itself. She, she, what her greatest talent is, is making people feel special. Yeah. She knows when my birthday is. To this day, she texts me every time on on, on my birthday every year. And, and I don't even know when your birthday is, and I've known you longer. <laughs> <laughs> but she knows when my kids' birthdays are. She, yeah. I mean, it's she makes, and I know she does that to everyone in her life because that's the type of person she is. So I didn't start this until later in life, until about a couple of years ago, that everybody that I meet and I have a relationship with, whether it's work, friendship, whatever, when they mention their birthday, I put it in my calendar and I set a reminder, say, you need to say happy birthday to them because people, I mean, that's just, it just feels good when people acknowledge whether it's your birthday or acknowledge something else. It's, that's important to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Touching upon what she, what she was in my life was to be authentic and to just realize that People are, I mean, you need to realize that the people around you are nothing without the people around you. Right. And, uh, it's, you need to acknowledge, you need to acknowledge them when you can. Um, it's, it's strange when we were growing up, but, and it's even more true to this day that it's so much easier to, you know, make fun of somebody than it is to give them a compliment. And uh, which doesn't make sense. It's no, it, yeah. So I guess the we're the transition of music to where where I am now is is always fun. Um but I was always interested in you know beer that tasted different, not like, you know, light lager or but there was a bar called Stuff Your Face. <laughs> they were known for strom <laughs> they were known for strombolis and they had like a hundred different taps or something like that. And if you drank fifty different beers, um, you would get a t shirt or something like that. So that's what that was kind of my and then uh, the pub I worked, the, the place I was at a bartender, they had, you know, small, unique uh, 
you know, micro brews on tap. And that was kind of my introduction to that whole scene. And all the while, I mean, I'm still into music and doing that and <clears throat> still thinking that I'm going to be a music engineer, producer. So I, that's kind of where that. And after graduation, I lived there for another year and then I'm, I'm getting homesick. Yeah. Know, money, money's getting tight. I'm eating ramen. I'm it's, I mean, there's definitely, I'm going through that, you know, learning what the difference between lust and love is and what I think that my, who I think I love is, is not really love in the end. And, or maybe it was, uh, but it really, that relationship really defined how I see, how I approached future relationships. I was still in a rut with that. So yeah, I needed I needed to get out. I needed to I needed to restart, and there was an opportunity to come home or come to Houston, where my parents had moved. And there was a there was a, a, a vocational school that you could learn how to become a recording engineer and record producer. And I was like, okay, this sounds like I mean I'm not going to be a musician, or I didn't think I was going to be but I really wanted to become an engineer, like record great musicians. And so that's, that opportunity came up and it was still the music industry. I was like, yeah, okay. I think this is it. So we, that's what I did. I left, I left, I left New Jersey, New York and went to this vocational school for, that was a two year course. And, um, now this vocational school was, was, where was this at? Where was this? It's in Houston. Okay. So I think to point, and I'm gonna I'm gonna step in on you real quick. Um, but I think it's important to notate in this in this story of Aaron's the number of times things changed. You know, you say, "Oh, well, Justin, it's only a few. It's only you know, it, well, it went from swimming to music, and now music. It looks like music is shifting, and now, but not only that, the place that you are trying to accomplish this goal, not only is the overall picture of the goal changed." Yeah. Now the location has changed where you've mm-hmm. spent now four plus years working to build a name for yourself, working with inside that, that area that's huge. Right. Um, and now you're looking at coming back to, I mean, again, Houston, not a small place, mm-hmm. but it's not exactly considered. Um, you know, I don't think a lot of people would think of Houston as being an epicenter for up and coming artists. Now that's not true. There's, amazing talent that comes from from this area of course but, but it's but it's a big shift correct it's a big shift and then and then you kind of lightly said you know in the meantime you're still being human you're still trying to focus on your career but you have a uh, a relationship that i love the fact that you said i was trying to figure out the difference between love and lust yeah i mean that's huge i think any i i mean all men go through that. And I mean, you were, you were experiencing it. And I mean, you were there when I was going through it all. And I can, yeah. I think the story that I want to tell is we had that construction job. Remember that we were working uh, with, we did that. That guy. Yes. I don't remember his name, but he, I don't was, either. he was a tiny Italian guy who was coked out. of Coked out and had a lisp. Yeah. (laughs) 
but I remember I was showing up late when we were doing, like we were doing drywall for one of the places or something. And we, sh- and I showed up late and he's, he would always be like high energy. And his hands were always going crazy with his gestures and yeah, he's coked sh- out. He's, yeah, he's coked out. And, and I was like, sorry, I'm late. And he, and he's, I'm like, I'm down. I am depressed. And he just stops and he goes, Aaron, what's wrong? I was like, nothing, nothing's wrong. And he, and he looks at me and he's like, it's a girl, isn't it? And then he just goes, he just goes, goes a dragon. You've got a dragon, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, what? And like, I'm like thinking, I was like, what are you talking about? I'm not telling yeah, you're you anything. You're a dragon. And it's like, you and you down. You've got a dragon right now. And I'm like, oh my God, this guy is speaking my language. Like, how does he, <laughs> how does he know this? And so that phrase that understanding the difference between lust and love is like when it's lust, it's like you will sacrifice all things just to have a taste. Yeah. And it's, and that's the difference. That's like the primary difference between lust and love, because you, you still have your respect for yourself when, when it's love. Um, and it's, it's a shared, it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship when it comes to love, but lust is like, you will sacrifice all things. You will give up respect for yourself. And and I think that phrase of the dragon, and I believe all men or even women, e- even women have this experience. It's like all people, when it comes to love and lust, is they will experience this dragon that will really, you know, alter the, their perspective on how they view relationships for the positive and the negative. And I, I want to. I want to paint the picture of this guy a little bit because those points are fantastic. But if you want to get, if you're listening, you want to get a real feel for kind of the persona of this man. I think he meant well, but, mm-hmm. but yes, he's kind of like, I always picture it back to him because he is small, but Colin Farrell's character in horrible bosses, <laughs> that silk robe wearing, yeah. you know, yielding a a or wielding a uh, katana blade you know just coked out of his brain you know yes. just freaking floating around like a psycho and for me that was my first introduction into people in new jersey <clears throat> and he was i believe if i remember correctly he was from manhattan and so he had that thick accent oh yeah and then he, like I said, he had the lisp and he was coked out. And he, the, the, the amount of gestures that he did, he was it exhausting. Looked like, it looked like he was in a Kung Fu movie when he spoke, <laughs> but he would talk and he'd be like, just, I need you to do it. And, that, and I'm like, like Billy Mattis, like slow down. Yeah. You know, I don't understand you. I'm from Oklahoma, but that is, I forgot about the dragon thing because there was a time frame where you guys were gone and I was struggling and. Didn't have any money, didn't have any food. And uh, he he was very caring. He did actually end up buying me some food. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now he took it from my next paycheck. But uh, (laughs) I thought he was being great. But no, no, I was like, why is my paycheck short? He's like, remember those groceries I bought you, Justin? Like, (laughs) okay. Um, So much for that. But, you know, he he did talk about that as as far as a relationship goes. And you're you're spot on. I mean, as a guy, you do want to get that taste. And yeah, you and if you don't as a man, message me later because we'll have a talk because you're missing out. But <laughs> you know, it's uh you need to change your life. But that is something that again, that can be the reason I keep coming back to it is because for me, my relationship, my 
shit. My dragon, mm-hmm. um, it it changed things for me in a in a negative sense. It it distracted me to the point where the path that I was on, I changed and deviated from it. You know, after I left there with you. Because mm-hmm. um, I'll never forget when, and this is just the the magnificence of Aaron at times, um, when he and I were talking about me moving from Oklahoma, things were going well for me in Oklahoma. If I had never had that conversation with Aaron, I probably would have a you know a master's degree, if not more at this point. So thanks for that. But um, I'm your dragon. You're my dragon for sure. <laughs> I did talk about intimate moments before, so we're painting a good picture here. But. Uh, <laughs> Guys, we have an amazing love affair. But anyway, you said to me, Justin, this is what books are written about in reference to that move. And yeah, and I was, and he's like, honestly, you know, I say he, like I'm telling the story again. I'm so used to this story, but because it was so impactful, you know, you also said in that same conversation that if I was in Bartlesville ten years from then that you would have considered it, you know, to be oh, a waste for me. I remember that conversation. And it, some people could listen to that and go, what a prick. Maybe I could understand it. And, and I go, no, he is a prick, but <laughs> I'm kidding. But it's, it was absolutely what I needed to hear. You knew that I would listen to that in the right, the right frame of mind and, and, and the right context of what you were saying. Um, and I took it, but again, the, to kind of circle back, you know, the point is these relationships, they can be damning. And for me, it was, for me, it, it, it was something I've, I'm still having to recover from. That's just a part of life. And that's where that definition between love and lust or people just being a season in your life and realizing that Mm -hmm. can make a world of difference between where you were going to where you end up. And so I think, like you said, like I I was there, I did see the things that you were struggling with internally with the relationships or with the relationship and you didn't deviate. I know you wanted to. Oh, so you kept that frame of reference right there as best as possible during that time frame. And now, you know, you've said, okay, I'm done with New York. Let's go Mm -hmm. to Houston. Start over. Get into this recording technology. Yep. And which it was, it was so much fun. And I, uh, there's definitely times I miss it, but the beauty is I still have a lot of my old equipment and I can record myself. Right. Um, But it was a really cool experience to try to, I, I think working with you when we were making music was you and I were able to create, I was, in your mouth, but I was able to help you create a vision of what you were hearing in your head. Right. And I felt I had a, an ability to do that with when I was at wind up, when I was playing with my other buddy, Nathan. Um, and I felt that as an engineer and producer, I could, you know, do that for others as well. And I think that's what I really, really loved about it. I got a, while I was at the school, I was able to get, um, several freelance jobs at other recording studios in Houston and Austin. Um, so jumping around, working with a bunch of 
the like the the whole idea of a record a recording engineer or producer is <clears throat> you don't typically just work for a studio you don't want to be beholden to anybody you want to be free and be able to bounce around in different recording studios and eventually have enough money to start your own studio when people come to you right <clears throat> um um and again it just during that experience i have a lot of fulfilling uh, records that I worked on, but a majority is what I would call glorified karaoke. People would come in, they would make a two track mix, two track meaning left and right, a stereo image on, they would, lack of better words, would make a beat. And they would give me the CD, I would put it in our recording software, and they would want to record vocals. And to me, that's, that, that's not enough. That is, that's, I'm using, using that word again. again. It is not, it's not what I want to be a part of. And I was in the recording industry for five, six years. All the while, there's still beer involved. I, I'm, I'm home brewing at this time. I'm, kind of building that into kind of this the current story but i just the music industry just was not authentic right and there were definitely people who are authentic and you and i had shared affinities of several of those musicians but i i think my impact on to be in that in there and i'm not one to go on the whole fate what is fate? Is there fate? I'm not really, I'm not here to talk about that. Um, but it was just, everything was kind of showing me that, you know what, I can have an impact somewhere else and still be very fulfilled. And yes. And with when, where the whole brewing thing came into play was I was realizing that while being a recording engineer and producer, a brewer, when I, I've been hanging out with a bunch of brewers is, and what's great about the craft brewing industry is it's all these people who have a dream who didn't like the corporate lifestyle or who didn't and create something that's enjoyable and you can share it with others. Now, if you take the product out of that and just use that phrase of someone who wants to start something on their own and share it with others, that can be many different products. It can be music, it can be beer, it can be plays, it can be, it can be clothes, it can be furniture, it can be, it can be anything. All kinds of things, absolutely. And I really had this connection of a brewer is the musician and the recording engineer producer. They have the vision for what this beer is, what this product is. And they are the engineers that also create it. So I had this, an epiphany that the brewer is everything that I wanted the music industry to be. It's authentic because these are very small producers. They're serving their community. They're not some, you know, standing behind the curtain. They're not Oz. It's right. We're in front of and supporting, you know, supporting others around us through a very <clears throat> jovial and enjoyable beverage. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, 
it's I, I, I got so excited about it when I when that when that transition occurred, and I'm in love with it still. Um, you know, and I'll never forget that phone call with you, um, because in this time frame, you know, Aaron and I have that kind of friendship where we may go a while without talking. But then as soon as we pick up the phone, it's like we spoke the day before. And so we, we had that phone call where you started telling me like, hey, I think my dad and I might open up a microbrewery in Corpus Christi. Yep. I was like, wait, what? Yeah. Hold on yeah. a second. <laughs> What? <laughs> like, you're not in New York anymore? Yeah. And, you know, because time had passed and, and things and things change. And I, and I, and I love the, the overall theme in this story because we, we, we talked about this the other day. And I don't know if you remember what you said to me about change. Because I want to give you – that was, your, that was your, your, your phrase, your saying. You'll have about, to remind me what it is. <laughs> about change as far as it's okay to change. When it comes oh, yeah. to passions. And when you realize that it's freeing. Change is great. I that, I am it gave me goosebumps. I I think of when you read your old high school yearbooks and you see the phrase never change, Aaron. Never change, Justin. <laughs> and I'm just like, Are you fucking kidding me? I'm so glad you both did. <laughs> I, we were, I douche, really we were douchebags. <laughs> I was like, change, grow. How else are you supposed to do it? I think what's the right. beautiful thing about the human body is like every seven years, your entire atom structure is completely changed. So theoretically, or not even theoretically, you are a completely different person every seven years, right. just in a, in a, bio, a biological standpoint. Um, but yeah, change is amazing. Change is how you oh. grow. Change is, is evolution. Like that is... Oh, I'm I mean, I, I'm, I'm thankful. <laughs> yeah, no, look, and that's, that was for me when I started thinking about what we're doing with this podcast and your story, that moment on the phone with you, when you said change is absolutely a part of that journey and it's okay. And when you realize that it's freeing, I mean, it made my nipples hard. Like it was, it was a moment I was like, yeah, that's absolutely true. Cause when I look at the path that I've been on, it's been littered with change and things that I never thought <laughs> that I would be doing. And, you know, it's like, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at it and I go, you know, you and I both had an affinity for the red hot chili peppers. Yes. And when I start thinking about that, you know, it's that, that part that we would always try to incorporate when we did do a couple of live shows, you know, where it's like, Hey, flee, flee. Mm. Yeah. I love you, man. I love you, man. Yeah. yeah you know, it was, just, it was like, <laughs> We both I have goosebumps. Had I have goosebumps. <laughs> I know, and, and we were young dudes. We had these big goals and big dreams. I think that's something that you and I have always shared. We just we can't help ourselves. But what I love about this is knowing you, and I'm going to put it this way, and and then and then we can let people who won't know who I'm talking about. But basically, you are now shifting from wanting to be Rick Rubin. Yes of the music world to Rick Rubin of the beer world. Yes. And Rick Rubin is who produced one of the red hot chili peppers. He's the greatest albums. Yeah. Blood sugar, sex, magic. He's Blood also sugar, sex, magic. He did another one too. Didn't he? He's, he did several Californication. He did California. Yeah. He's done many of them. I know. Yeah. But yeah. 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 So to put it in perspective, 
he's a he's a music producer that is vastly known through the industry as one of the greats. And now you've shifted from essentially wanting to be that in the music world to beer. And what a beautiful, poetic entanglement of two worlds to consider this in and of itself. You want to create. Yeah. And I love that, man. I think genetically, as human beings, I you know, at times I'll say men especially, but we're made to create. Yes. We are absolutely made to create. And I don't care what that thing is. I think it's drawing or, or craft booking, you know, like or, it's. I think that's the beauty of, the, of, of being a human. We're not we're not in this world to just, you know, survive, eat, sleep, survive. Right. We are here to create. And that's. Oh, it's so cool, man. I hope one kid listens to this shit. <laughs> and he's and I when I say kid, like maybe even my own son. He comes to me, Dad. You know what I think I want to do? What's that, buddy? I know you wanted to be a doctor or an astronaut, and I love that. No, 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 not anymore. I listen to Aaron Incrut, <laughs> and I want to craft beer. God, damn it, Aaron. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But the point is, I hope that someone can find this. Someone listens to this and says, "Yeah." Change yeah. is fine. Change is good because so many people aren't okay with it. Yeah, I mean, as, as, soon as, as soon as you lose control, then people feel like they're going to fail. And that's fine. Failure is a lesson. There's, uh, you learn from failure. <laughs> hopefully, you no. can learn from, hopefully you can learn from their mistakes. But humans are born to, make, to, to even screw that up. Absolutely. And that's, that's the biggest part for me where, you know, when I had the, the concept for this podcast, it was with the foundation of, for me, in all these years, I was not afraid of change. Did it make me nervous? And as I've gotten older and kind of mellowed out a bit, do I look at things and do much more calculated risk assessments? Yes. I mean, shit, when I moved with you, I sold my car, I dropped out of school, I quit my jobs, and I was on a bus with everything that I owned to a place I'd never been to before. That was a bit reckless. I would do it a bazillion times over. I'm glad to hear that. There is not a single thing that I look back as far as risks that I actually took that I regret. It's the chances that I didn't take that I regret. <clears throat> and we hear that all the time. And, you know, I think to point of change, we, we've talked a lot about our hometown. And I know I've got people from our hometown that listen. So, guys, you know, you hear what I'm about to say. Get over it. <laughs> I think there is an element of staying in a, a place that you have lived in for your entire life. If you never venture out that does limit your ability to grow as a person. It limits perspective. Correct, and which limits growth. Yes. And that opportunity is only, only obtained by taking those calculated risks, and that's outside of vacationing. Yeah. I think what's beautiful, you need, to, you need to engross yourself in 
someone else's reality because that's the only way you can truly learn how others live vacationing is vacationing is only do it within your you know your wheelhouse right and it's not Um, it's not real no vacation's not real i mean it's just not reality um you know and so if you are familiar with the houston area you know that there is a train that yeah, sorry about that. The, no, it's okay. <laughs> I've learned on this podcast that we are very raw. We are very authentic, you know, and I'm always <laughs> going to keep it that way. I mean, I'm, I said it on my podcast that will come out on July 4th um, that I'm literally sitting in my closet. That's, it's a good anechoic I, chamber. Absolutely. It's, it's the, <laughs> anechoic. Oh, my God. <laughs> Everybody's minds were just blown by that. Well, it's a studio uh, term. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm sitting there going, "This is my studio," and but I, you know, it's it's to say, you know, I'm I'm starting somewhere. You have to, that's the only that's you have to take the first step. That's the biggest part of it, right? And so, you know, that's kind of circling back into this because I know that we're going to have to be at a hard stop at about nine o'clock. But the the move into doing the beer and creating. I said doing the beer. That's beautiful. <laughs> um, going from music engineer to basically a beer engineer and creating a product. Like you said, it makes people jovial. It's something that is a science. And I had no idea oh, it's how much the, of a science that is. It's the beautiful marriage of science and creativity. That's I love it so much because it not only just the creative aspect of it, but I, especially with COVID, you see the impact of people not being able to get out and they can still go to the store and get a beer. And I would do these, these virtual tastings and just to kind of be able to interact even virtually and just share this, you know, this, this, you know, liquid of life is just a it's so much fun to share it. And that's what I loved about music, being able to play and share this passion and see the joy in people's faces. But now it's, I share it in describing flavors and, and it kind of goes back that I have much greater impact on my surroundings and my community now than I ever did as a musician. And what's, and I, th- I think that's always what I wanted to do in life was to be able to share and be with others to share in that, you know, experience. It's uh, yeah. And that's a beautiful thing because you've also in that process been able to not just share it, but grow in it through the relationship and the support that you have from your wife. Oh yeah. I could, I wouldn't have been able to get into beer or the beer industry without, without her. Um, I was just, I mean, leaving the recording industry, so no longer taking money in and she, she had a job too. So, I mean, it's not like we were financially stable or anything, um, but she was very supportive of it. I mean, it's definitely a weird conversation and she was with me learning about beer. when When we were dating, we would go to a bar called the flying saucer and like you would, the, the whole purpose of going there is they have the, the, all these different beers and they encourage you to try things, try new things. And right. so it was just kind of through all that. And then 
we were living together for a long time before we got married. So it's just always talking to her about, I'm tired of music. I'm tired of recording. I want to, maybe I'll consider this. And so we started talking about either opening a brewery or working at one and then potentially opening a brewery. And I mean, eventually things, and it's like, it's just really nice to have that enthusiasm with your partner. And, uh, she's, yeah, she's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And would definitely would not be where I'm at without, without her. Um, yeah, no. And that's something that, you know, in all of this, I get questions sometimes, man, cause I know you've listened to, to some of the other podcasts and I've actually just been straight out asked by, um, people if it, it was only going to be male guests that I have on. It's like, no, I mean, there's going to be a bulk of, of, of guests I have that are, are male because it is meant to ideally stoke the fire within men in our day and age to, to really take on being what it means to be masculine, to be an alpha male. And I don't mean the guy that's the loudest in the room, pounding his chest you know, with the, you know, in a pissing contest, but understanding that like what we just hit on an alpha male can be someone that understands that without his wife, he's not where he is. Uh, I, yeah. That there's, there's not a hierarchy in the sense that behind every great man is an even better woman. Fuck that. It's, it's teamwork. Oh, for sure. And recognizing it's a team effort the talents of others to you know lift up your faults i mean it's you need to yeah i think it's important for any man man or woman to realize that true success is is with the help of others absolutely and, uh, i'm nothing without my team the company i work for is nothing without you know the nothing without each other yep like that might sound socialist, but it's <laughs> no. I think it's important. I think it's very important to notate that we will not go down that rabbit hole. But, um, but it's important to notate that that again, success is not obtained without a team. Success is yeah. not obtained singularly. Yeah, you will not get there on your own. These people that say they're overnight successes or they're deemed as overnight successes—that is absolute horseshit. It is not true. It is what you're seeing after years and years yeah. of effort and mistake and falling and recalibrating the perception and the viewpoint of where you're trying to go. And in that, you are never done. Oh, yeah. That's, my, that's one of my favorite sayings. You're never done. You're never done. I think that was always important, especially with even being in high school. Most, most kids in high school will never understand that phrase until they get older. Right. And I think if they see that high school is, you know, the end of, of the, the best years of their life. Well, mm -hmm. uh, if, you, if you really feel that way, then I feel sorry for you because you're not oh. done yet. Because you're not done yet. Close that damn chapter. And you and I remember this, the, one of the, my favorite bands when I was working at wind up was strata. Yep. And they had, they had a lyric that said every second change. Yep. And that phrase is just an incredible, powerful life lesson to know that 
anything can change. Nothing, you are not done yet. Because I've always looked since then, since college and since those experiences, I still view life as this upward. You're, you're, you're continually climbing. You're not in this circle. You're not in this circle of up, ups and downs and, and like that. No. You're learning. You're progressing. You're growing. And I think you need to, everyone should realize that you're not done. Mm. Continue. And I think that's exciting. I think it's freeing. I think that is, you know, if I were to look at the time frame that we have on this podcast today, it's, it's a beautiful spot to kind of close this part of our story that, you know, because honestly, man, this is not going to be the first podcast that you're on. With me. <laughs> there are a lot of things that we can hash out just from oh, our experiences sure. together, experiences separately. I, I think what you just said there about you're never done. If there is anything you take away from this podcast, it is that accept change. Your story is going to change. And once you accept that, it's free. It yeah. is absolutely true. And then with that, marry it to you're never done. It doesn't matter. Aaron, you may open up the world's largest brewery. You may overtake, you know, I was going to say Budweiser, but I don't want to insult you like that. But you make it to where you have your own brewery. If that's where you decide to go. But even then, I know that for you, the work's not done. Yeah. You haven't stopped growing. You haven't stopped evolving. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, that's one, who you are. Two, you have a tribe of your own that you want to continue to teach and to help them grow and to understand that, like you said to me, everything feels so finite, especially when you're, like you said, in high school, when you're younger. Yeah. And lastly, before I, I wrap this up, it's please do not let one portion of your life be that best portion, whether it's high school, college, your 20s. Make right now the beginning of that portion. You choose how this story is going to play out. Yes, there are going to be speed bumps. Yes, there are going to be things out of your control. But the moment you take charge, it's liberating, it's free. All that said, Aaron, you know, I love you, buddy. Love I you, can't. Man. I can't tell you how much I have appreciated this hour and a half that you've spent on the phone with me this morning. I cannot wait to have you back on. And, and this next time, we're probably going to have some more specific topics. Um, but your story is one that I think is motivating. I think it's encouraging. I think it is book worthy. And it feels good after all this time for us to be sitting here doing what we're doing. After everything that the both of us have gone, gone through. And how far off our paths were at times to see how they've come back together again. So I am thankful for that. I thank you. You are the man, man. You're my dragon. <laughs> that said, guys, listen, if you want me to be able to continue to do this, if you want to be able to continue to hear things and stories from people like Aaron, 
There is only one. So people like Aaron. Spread the word. Like this. Share this. Get involved with this. You can find me at JL Copeland 82 on Instagram. My name on Facebook, Justin Copeland. The podcast itself, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and the Anchor app that you do have to download. We also have the blog, Navigating the Intentional Life, uh, where I make an attempt to put thoughts together through sentences and words that hopefully move you just as much as the podcast. That said, love you all. Aaron, thank you again, my friend. Talk to you all soon.